Dress the History of Fashion is a production of iHeartRadio. billion people in the world, we all have one thing in common. Every day, we all get dressed. Welcome to Dressed, the history of fashion, a podcast where we explore the who, what, when of why we wear. We are fashion historians and your hosts, April Callahan and Cassidy Zachary. Welcome, dress listeners, to part two of our conversation with dress historian Kate Strasden, who is back to take us into the pages and behind the scenes of the remarkable life of Anne Sykes and her dress diary, which you may remember from Tuesday's episode is comprised of some 2,000 plus fabric swatches spanning five decades. And this, of course, is the subject of this week's two-part podcast. And of course, Kate's new book, The Dress Diary of Mrs. Anne Sykes, Secrets from a Victorian Woman's Wardrobe, which just so happens to be released to UK readers today, February 23rd, 2023. Happy book release day to Kate. Yes, congratulations, Kate, on this incredible book that we are only going to continue to learn more about today. On Tuesday's episode, Kate introduced us to Anne and her intimate relationship with the British textile industry that led Anne and her husband to move 7,000 miles away to Singapore for seven years. We met some of the colorful and fashionable cast of characters that populated her world there and who also so generously gave her fabric swatches from their clothing for Anne's diary. Yes, and today we meet some of those fascinating figures as we continue to dive deeper into Anne's world, learning about the fashion evolutions and innovations she witnessed in her lifetime, and of course the dress practices and clothing etiquette that governed her life. Let's pop back into my and Kate's conversation. It should come as no surprise that fashion figures prominently throughout the book. Can you tell us how you went about constructing fashions from fabric? Because there's multiple wonderful moments throughout the book where you tell us about the fabric swatch and then you help us envision what that dress would have looked like. Well, again, thanks to the amazing visual records that we have, either through surviving garments that have been photographed. And so places like the Met Museum, the Museum at FIT, the V&A, they all have amazing records so that you can you can kind of bring to life what garments actually look like on the body from any given time period what's amazing about the book with Anne is that the the colors are so vibrant because they've been trapped in the in the pages so you can you can easily search and find the actual silhouettes for that period and it covers of course she covers the decade when she marries, it's 1838, where you still have the kind of puff sleeves and, you know, the leg of mutton sleeves and that particular more Multiple. natural waistline. Yeah, right. that, that kind of. And then you get through. She She's still recording it in the 1850s when you have the crinoline. And then she's still recording it in the 1860s with the even bigger crinoline. And she's still including swatches in the 1870s. And in fact, at one point, she does record a swatch where she says, oh, Anne Sykes, Polonaise. So even in the 1870s, when she is an older woman, she's talking about a polonaise, which is a a fashionable style of garment at that time. And so she's still keeping her finger on the on the kind of pulse of fashionable silhouettes. So they are present all through. Although you only have these tiny swatches, it's possible to see how 
she engaged with dress throughout the book, through the patterns. You can see what I what I did as a kind of interesting exercise with some of the fabric, the fabric types was try to find a surviving garment that had uh, a similar pattern. And I did, it, it was surprisingly easy to find pictures of garments that are similar, not this, exactly the same fabric, but it shows just how much, even though these were women that were living um, not at the center of the fashion universe, they weren't in London, they weren't, but it proves that women were just able to think about things and fashions that they enjoyed, even if they didn't have the same budget or they didn't live in these really uh, kind of what we might think of as being very fashion-centric spaces. Yeah, and of course she's living during this period of rapid change and massive industrialization. And part of that is fashion illustrations and fashion magazines are becoming more and more available and more readily available, right? Obviously not to her in Singapore, but she does move back after seven years. And fashion was just incredibly central to women's lives. I mean, something you write about a lot in the book is kind of those specificities of fashion, the clothing etiquette that really governed women's lives from what time of day they had to wear a garment. And of course, this is women of a certain middle-class means like Anne to the proper attire for weddings. And then one of my favorite sections is also your morning section, which was just so fascinating because you write about the rise of these quote-unquote emporiums of mourning, right, that sprouted up in the 19th century to capitalize on mourning culture. And I'm wondering if you think that they kind of fed into one another because it is during Queen Victoria's reign or the Victorian era where you see kind of the ways in which mourning culture really becomes incredibly intricate and specific. And I can't help but wonder if people who wanted to make a lot of money helped ensure that women were wearing mourning clothes for multiple years. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think that's very much the case, particularly when you compare how little amount of time men had to retain their mourning, uh, kind of official mourning, outward signs of it anyway. You know, they had to wear a black armband for a, a while and that was pretty much it. Whereas women have these very, you're right, very complicated etiquettes around when and what they can wear, for what period of time, what that signifies. It's its incredibly elaborate. And that was kind of spurred on by three swatches in the book that came from someone called Hannah Kubra. And she had sent Anne three swatches of clothes that she wore when she was in mourning for her mother. And they vary from all black to pieces that could arguably be described as kind of half mourning because they have a bit of lilac and pale a, a cream in them. So yes, that was kind of, that was the, the inspiration behind that chapter was Hannah's contribution that she had decided to record her mother's, the, the clothes that she, she wore after the death of her mother. And it's, it is really fascinating that etiquette. We, we don't, we don't have that. I think because we have this very, a much freer approach maybe to, to dress now in some senses, you could say that we, that we don't prescribe quite so many rules. I mean, I guess you could argue there are all these unspoken rules that we all adhere to in different ways, but anyway, because it isn't perhaps quite so obvious, because they literally, Jay's Morning Warehouse literally published a book on morning etiquette so that you could follow the right styles at the right time. Uh, so yes, 
I think it's it's fascinating that there are these this level of detail that we just don't get now. Yeah, and of course, I mean, this is outside the topic, but that all breaks down in, during World War One and after World War One, where you kind of see the breakdown of like those rigid standards because there was, you know, millions and millions of people who died and how are all these people going to upkeep with this, you know? So it's just incredibly fascinating um, and really something I, again, had not really considered or known a lot about, but to kind of equate that mourning culture within the rise of, you know, kind of department stores and mass production, I think is super interesting to consider. So I'm curious, do you have any particular favorite fabric swatches or stories you'd like to share from this experience? Yeah, there are a couple. I still think there are lots to learn. I think there are probably some that I haven't managed to. Um, I think it's still got, It's there are still stories to emerge from this. There are a couple that I really enjoyed discovering. One that made sense once I knew who Anne was and what she was doing uh, was belonged to somebody called Mrs. McEwen. And I discovered that Mrs. McEwen was the wife of another of the merchants living in Singapore. And so I guess a friend or certainly an acquaintance of Anne's in the settlement. And there's this really nice, it's a, it's a printed cotton. It's got a really kind of bold, almost like a warp printed pattern on it in purple and red. It's really, it must've been as a whole garment, it must've been really bright. And Anne writes next to this piece of fabric that it was Mrs. McEwen's dress worn when we went on the picnic to, and then I couldn't make out the the writing. It made no sense. But once I knew they were in Singapore and I just searched um, sort of popular picnic areas in that and it came up with an island and it's really difficult to pronounce and I'm not even going to try it, but it made sense. So this these two words that she had written that they went on a picnic this is where they went. And it was a small island just out uh, in the harbour of Singapore. And so here you have this, this moment, this really carefree moment where I guess they'd all piled into a boat and rowed out to the island and had their picnic campers with them. And Mrs. McEwen was wearing this really vibrant dress. And so there's a moment in time. That's what's really interesting. I think the other swatch that also did that was the one that first swatch that was to do with the Preston Guild. So it was Emily Taylor who wore, it said her sash that she wore to the fancy ball at the Preston Guild. And thanks to it being such a large event that takes place every 20 years, there was a really good record of the events in the, in the newspaper, in the newspapers at the time. And I was able to find Emily Taylor in the Preston Chronicle and it described her wearing the fancy ball everybody had to dress in different uh, it was a fancy dress ball and she was listed as dressing as a Swiss peasant girl or Swiss flower girl so here's this sash wow. which is <laughs> and there she is there's a tiny bit and so again you can kind of practically pinpoint that piece of fabric to a really specific moment in time and know exactly where she was what what she was doing what she was wearing and that felt like Um, you could just reach back and there she was. Yeah, and I'm glad you brought up Fanny because one of the narrative threads of this book is Anne's intimate 
and treasured relationships with various women throughout her life. And Fanny was one of those people who I think made repeated appearances, but you talk about how it's just for this brief period of time, or maybe not a brief period, but it's for a period of time, and then she kind of disappears. But something you brought up is how they did like dressing. Can you talk to us about like dressing? This is something you talked about in the context of your Queen Alexandria episode with us too, which is, I just, it's such a fun, lovely practice that I kind of wish people would bring back. I I really... (laughs) Fanny Fanny Taylor is a really interesting character because I, I, I can't find her anywhere. So I know that she's a very close confidant of Anne. Anne writes about the dress that she wore when she met Fanny arriving in Singapore. So I think it was somebody that she knew from home who came to live with them maybe for a time. Because for most of the time that they're in Singapore, Anne is sharing fragments that says, you know, morning gowns worn on Christmas Day. And Anne Sykes and Fanny Taylor, or neck ribbons, Anne Sykes and Fanny Taylor, or something else. They were always buying the same garments or the same cloth that they would have made into the same garments, uh, the ribbons. And it seems to be a particularly, so, uh, sisters were often dressed alike, and that was quite a common practice. But to have a sign of, I guess it's a sign of sisterhood in a sense, that you wear the same clothes and maybe not all the time, but at certain points and it's a mark of your closeness. And I think it's a really lovely way of dress operating as a signifier of, of relationships and, and closeness. And that's what Fanny seems to represent. And it is sad that I couldn't find her. Her the name is so common that there were, and there were no particular dates so with many of the other people in the book, it's often a marriage date or a, a christening. It will say someone was christened in a certain year and then it's easy to track them down. But there was no corresponding dates with Fanny. And so trying to dredge her up through the records was almost impossible. And she never featured after Anne returned back to the UK. So I did wonder if perhaps Fanny had died when they were in Singapore. Um, I couldn't find her in any obituaries or any lists of she just kind of was like a ghost she was there and then she was gone but they were they were clearly really close I mean did she document anyone's deaths in the album because other than I know you mentioned that one woman in relationship to mourning but she was documenting her friend's mourning not her own mourning um so I mean I would surmise maybe that Fanny passed away or something to that effect yeah no she didn't And I guess because it wasn't a conventional diary in as much as she was talking about life events, she doesn't mention when people have died. Uh, It's quite interesting that there are a couple of black, there are black garments in there, that both she wore and people around her wore. So I guess it's kind of implicit in that she's indicating times where she's had to purchase uh, mourning garments for herself and, and her friends. So it's kind of there, but it's unspoken. She doesn't really explicitly write about it. Another woman that I love that you bring up, and of course her name is particularly apt for the fabric swatch that you discuss, is Bridget Peacock. (laughs) Who has, you know, you talk, this is a part where you talk about the history of aniline dyes and the, the brightest of hues and the introduction of color. Of course, they had color in their wardrobes previously, but not this vibrancy of these bold aniline dye colors. And then you you remind us that 
quote, if we were able to see Anne and the people who inhabited her world, we would see color. Can you talk to us a little bit about Bridget and what she was wearing? Well, Bridget seems to feature predominantly in the 1850s, although she did occur. There was one note where it said that there was a dress of hers worn in Malta. There's a really interesting connection. I can't quite figure out how Anne came to be in Malta. She was there in 1839. So before they went to Singapore, maybe it was a honeymoon or I don't know, or, or some kind of trading thing with Adam. And she seems to have either been with or met Bridget in Malta. But then it was a connection that, that was maintained over the, the following decades. And Bridget's really interesting because she might have been somebody that would have been described as a spinster for a long time. She was in her 30s, her 40s, um, unmarried, but wearing these really bright aniline purples. And I love that because I think our that kind of the trope of the spinster as this kind of um, timid creature who is just living at the whim of their relatives because, you know, they're, they're a kind of a spare woman. And here you had Bridget, who is traveling to Malta. She's wearing bright purple dresses. Uh, she's really got her, even in her 40s, she's right at the kind of cutting edge of, of new fashion technologies in wearing the, the aniline dyes. And then what was really, well, I hope it was lovely, was that there was a swatch in the early 1860s that recorded Bridget marrying. And she married um, a widower who had three children who were already in their teens at that point. And I like to think that it was a happy marriage and not just one that she'd had to kind of take out of convenience. I don't know. But she was a colourful character in all senses that she had kind of Again, I, I'm probably romanticizing it, but I like to think that she was this this kind of unmarried woman who um, had not let that dampen her enthusiasm for color and and life. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think you can romanticize it. I mean, so much of this is kind of speculation, right? We have to envision and imagine what these women must have really been like. And again, you've done such a wonderful job doing that, um, you know, educated conjecture, educated guesses, right? Using history and other sources to bring these women into view into life. And again, one of the narrative threads of this book is bringing often hidden women to the fore. And that's exhibited in one, quote, striking printed cotton in shades of brown. A geometric repeat is broken by a broad stripe of autumnal shaded leaves, tendrils that curl in a vertical trellis. And you say it's deceptively captioned, simply Margaret Charnock. Uh, what and who does this fabric reveal? Well, that was one that uh, came kind of came late on um, because, again, it was just a name that had no identifying. There was no date or anything. So it could have been anyone. You know, there was no way of knowing. And then I had just been revisiting some other records and I was looking again at the census records and I must have in the interim seen her name in the album and then suddenly recognized it in the census records and on the 1851 census of Anne and Adam's household um, they never had children by the way so this is uh, so in their household it was generally Anne and Adam anybody that was visiting at that point and then the members of their household and right at the bottom of their household list in 1851 was the name Margaret Charnock and and she was their cook and it's very unusual to have, first of all, uh, somebody 
who was working for them recorded in the book. I don't know if any of the other names in the book may have been associated with with people that worked with or for them. Um, there's I haven't found anyone so far, but she was with them for a long time. So she was still with them, for example, in the um, in the later censuses when they had moved to different parts of, of Lancashire. So she remained with them for decades as their cook. And I managed to find out quite a bit about Margaret. So she'd been born um, in a on a farm in Lancashire and then had taken the route to domestic service, which was very common at that point for somebody of the of the working class. And then she had started as a housemaid, so a kind of maid of all work in a small household, and then had clearly been ambitious and worked her way undertaken some some training or been taken under the wing of another cook and learnt how to how to be a cook and so that was her that was her role and again she actually um at the age of 55 married so she married a builder who lived near the house that she lived in with Anne and Adam and and had a kind of a brief second career as a as a wife in her 50s. Unfortunately, she died only a couple of years after her marriage, but she was a a really, it was brilliant to, again, find a voice that would not normally have been recorded. You know, Margaret is not somebody whose whose dress or life or would not find voice really anywhere else. Yeah, which is unfortunate. And you talk about how rare this fabric scrap is, but also just even how rare it is to find garments worn by people of the working classes because they're just not something that was really treasured or valued by collectors or museum curators, or as you talk about in the book, also how this clothing was worn and then passed down and worn again until it, you know, had fallen apart or was no longer wearable and then discarded. But I mean, to me, and I know you agree with me, these are the really fascinating stories. You write about this in your Queen Alexandria book too, where you Part of the really fascinating aspect of that book, of course, is Queen Alexandria, but you write about the laundry service and, you know, the lives of people behind the scenes who are really making the dress, you know, realities, the fashion realities of these women and men in these households come to fruition on a daily basis. Um, And you do that again in this book. You write about laundry, you write about, you know, you have this fabulous upstairs, downstairs chapter where you talk about Margaret and her and take us behind the scenes. And I really, really appreciated that. And something that you talk about throughout the book, too, is kind of these hidden hands, right, um, that made Anne's dress life come, you know, into being. Yes, it's always, I think, the hidden, I think all of these. I mean, Anne herself, even though she's from a she's from a, a, a comfortable background, you know, she's a, a, a wealthy woman. But nonetheless, her story would not be told. Adam's story would be told because he's this kind of well-to-do merchant and he's part of the... Uh, merchant class in Singapore who does have books written about him and or does have parts of books written about him because he's on the grand jury and he does all of these so in the same way that in so many other histories the achievements of the men find find their place but their wives who are just along for the ride and are living the same life and experiencing the same hardships more hardships their stories are not told so I I've always enjoyed finding those women and Margaret Charnock is you're right there's no the museums just didn't want to collect that kind of material 
certainly in the early 20th century when this kind of thing was starting to gather momentum. Nowadays, I think museums would be more likely to collect working class dress than they would the the really opulent kind of gowns of, of the wealthier classes. Yeah, because it's about the stories, right, that these garments tell as well. It's not just about, you know, this is really beautiful to look at, but what does this garment tell us? Where does it take us? And that's what you've done so brilliantly with this book in Finding the Hidden Lives of Women. We also did that in our Pockets episode. We had the authors of Pockets, The Hidden Lives of Women on. Again, you have to get really creative to find these women and these voices um, that weren't considered valuable to record by historians of the period or museum collectors of the period, uh, curators of the period who were you know, saving this type of information for posterity. And then just this amazing idea that this album made it all the way to you in the 21st century, you know, over a hundred and what, 40 years after Anne passed away is just remarkable. (laughs) It is, and it's the journey. I have no idea how it got from Lancashire, where Anne died, to London. Uh, That is a journey kind of lost in time. But it is remarkable that that it survived that that she left enough of a clue to be able to allow that story to unravel uh, all these years later so yeah it's it's kind of remarkable in that respect We talked a lot about her Singapore period. She was there for seven years. And then you write about how kind of as she got older throughout the years, um, she kind of scrapbooked less and less, but she still did up until the very end. Can you kind of just give us a little trajectory of her life and then how you found her again? Part of your personal journey and something that you share with us throughout the book is how personal experience this was for you and how you were able to finally get out and actually literally walk in her footsteps. Can you share that with us? Yeah. So when they returned from, uh, in fact, they had two years in Shanghai after Singapore, they came back from Shanghai and returned to Lancashire. And at that point, it was kind of, I managed to trace the various places they lived. They lived in uh, near Manchester for a time. And then they moved to this beautiful place called Coulthurst Hall, which is in a near the town of Clitheroe in Lancashire. Um, And it was this at this point, Adam is describing himself as a gentleman on the census. So he's kind of gentrified himself. He made enough money as a merchant to kind of uh, move social statuses in, in that way. They rented this amazing place called Coulthurst Hall, which looks over the Ribble Valley near Clitheroe. And then later in life, they moved to the coast. So the, first of all, they moved to Lytham, which is a, a beautiful kind of seaside resort on uh, on the coast. And then finally, they retired to a place called The Knoll, which was a large detached property right up on the hill above Blackpool, um, a couple of miles north of Blackpool. And that's where they both died. So Adam in 1888, and then Anne, just 18 months later, she died in 1890. And they were both buried in Bispam Churchyard. And and hadn't recorded. It's almost like you get a sense in the book that in those later years, she really was running out of steam with it. She would maybe just write a year or she'd write somebody's first name, but the writing was much larger. The swatches were kind of much bigger and less neatly cut. So it was like she was just kind of losing. Maybe she wasn't so interested in clothes anymore. Or, and then she stopped altogether. 
And yeah, so then in January, oh, well, it's exactly this time last year when all the lockdowns were over and the book was in the final stages of, of being written. And I just had the final kind of section to write. And I thought, you know, I, I have to go and find her. I have to go and find, before I kind of finish writing it, I have to feel that I've been to some of the places that I would have done had the pandemic not intervened. And so last January, we took a trip north and was able to really find her. Uh, we visited St. George, uh, the church in St. George's in Tilsley, where they were married. And I was able to kind of walk along the, the footpath and imagine her in her wedding dress when she married Adam. Um, found her parents, who were both buried in the churchyard there. And then we drove to Coulthurst Hall, which is still kind of largely untouched. It looks very much as it would have done. And um, much to my husband's disgust, I did kind of go down the driveway and knock on the door. <laughs> you had <laughs> he to. He was horrified. Like, oh, oh, I did. Um, but I just knocked on the door and explained who I was. And the lady who was lived there really kindly showed us around the house. And I saw the room that uh, some of the fabric from the album, the drawing room fabric, had been located in, which was amazing. And that night we stayed in the Imperial Hotel in Blackpool, which was where Anne and Adam were on the night of the 1871 census. And then finally, um, on a kind of really wet and windy day in January, uh, the next day, we went to Bispam Churchyard and I had bought a small kind of flowering plant from Lytham, which is where they had lived. Uh, and I took it and we found, we walked around the churchyard and found the really elaborate Celtic style cross, uh, which had both Anne and Adam's uh, names on. And I planted the plant at the foot of the cross as a, because really I'd found her and she'd given me so much. So I really, it felt like a really important thing to do that I'd actually, that I'd, I'd found her and, and um, here was the kind of end of both of our stories. Wow, that is so beautiful. Thank you for sharing that with us. And I mean, what does this experience mean to you and, and what do you hope others will take away from this book? For me, it's been, I think, seeing me through the pandemic has made this a very personal book because I was writing it at a time where I was homeschooling my kids and I was t uh, teaching from home, teaching online, which was its own special kind of awful. Um, and obviously we were all experiencing this weird and um, kind of seismic change in our world. And it was strangely that as this world was shutting down, I was able to escape into Anne's world and go to Singapore and go to learn about the pirates and the tiger attacks. And the um, so in a way, it sustained me through the pandemic. It gave me this color and vibrancy and travel that was felt so far away at that point so it did in a weird way become a very kind of joyful and life-affirming study because it because it happened when it did and that made it particularly special for me and I hope that I don't think you have to be necessarily really interested in fashion to to enjoy the book or or really into textiles it's it's more about about life and storytelling and and kind of social history 
as much as it is about about fashion. Absolutely. And like I said, such an unexpected book in so many ways, because I was expecting it to be so much about fashion and textiles, and it was, but you've integrated it with these biographies and created this vibrant narrative about this woman who without you would have been left to history. And you've brought her back in full color for all of us and all of her wonderful friends and family. So thank you so much for this beautiful book and for coming on today on these two episodes and sharing this journey with us. Oh, thank you. I've so enjoyed talking to you. And um, yeah, she's out there and I hope I hope everyone enjoys meeting her. Thank you, Kate. This was amazing. Well, what are you waiting for, dress listeners? Get your hands on a copy of The Dress Diary of Mrs. Anne Sykes, Secrets from a Victorian Woman's Wardrobe, out now in the UK and out on June 6, 2023 in the US. Yeah, and one has to wonder, April, if Anne ever in her wildest dreams could have imagined her diary would spark such interest so many years after her death. Who knows? Perhaps that's why she created it, right? So that her colorful and textured life would live on after her death. I mean, there's so much more to know about Anne's life and some that we'll never know, right? And yet it's absolutely incredible when you consider what Kate was able to discover and uncover with what the album did offer, so much so that she was even able to walk in Anne's very own footsteps. What a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. I just want to say, did Anne even conceptualize what a podcast is? And uh, would that she would ever be on one? <laughs> yes, exactly. Well, that does it for us today, dress listeners. May you reflect on the fabric that comprises your life next time you get dressed. Remember, we love hearing from you. So if you'd like to write to us, you can email us at dress at iheartmedia.com. You can also DM us on Instagram at dress underscore podcast, where you find images and reels accompanying each week's episodes. If you would like to find the Instagram content specifically connected to these two episodes this week, you can check out the hashtags dressed297 and dressed298. That's hashtag dressed and then the numbers 297 and 298. And as always, special thanks to our producers, Casey Pagram, Holly Fry, and everyone else at iHeartRadio who makes the show possible each and every week. More Dress coming your way on Tuesday. Dress the History of Fashion is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you listen to your favorite shows.